most of you probably know that uh, Mark and I, as much as we can, preach through the same texts. And so though I'm, I'm filling in today, I'm actually able to continue walking through Joel with you today. So we're going to be looking at Joel chapter 2. And if you were a bit uh, maybe disoriented last week by the images of despair and destruction that are unleashed in the book of Joel as part of God's plan, don't feel bad. You're not alone. (laughs) Uh, As a modern audience living in one of the safest and most civil societies in the history of the earth, uh, these are some of the most difficult topics that we find in the scriptures, and uh, we ought to wrestle and struggle through them together. But perhaps maybe uh, something that's been hanging on uh, like a loose thread for you as it has for me is the question, how does this God of the Old Testament have anything to do with the Jesus that we meet in the New Testament? And attempting to answer that question really is, in large part, uh, some of the challenge that that guys like me and Pastor Mark have to take on (laughs) to help us all make that connection. And uh, what I would hope you all would see, and what I hope I would see more and more as I get to know Jesus more deeply in my life experience, is that Jesus really came to us in many ways as as a typological Old Testament prophet. When you look at the coming of Christ, the first thing he says in the first gospel, the gospel of Mark, is repent. (laughs) You think of all the things we want to remember that Jesus says and all the things that we want to remember that Jesus did, his priority was to get the church to repent. And this refrain is one he returns to throughout the Gospels, no matter whom he's speaking with, whether he's speaking to the young or the old, to men or to uh, children, to Jews or to Gentile, to the rich or to the poor. The message is always the same. It's repent. And so what Jesus shows us through these things is that he comes to us in many ways, just as the Old Testament prophets did to to warn us of the coming day of the Lord and to show us how to withstand the trials and the hardships that will undoubtedly impact all of our lives. And so that's what I hope we can explore a little bit today as we look at Joel chapter 2. So if you're able to stand, please do. We're going to read a longish passage, 17 verses, and I will read. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been seen before. 
nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations." Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Lord, we ask for your help as we come to yet again another difficult passage in your word. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you administer to those of us who call you, Lord, help us to understand what this means for us and for those of us here today that do not call you Lord, who may not know you, Lord, we pray that you would gently minister uh, to those as well, that we all may come to know you more deeply, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at the passage today, what we're going to focus on is how repentance is and always has been the path forward for those who sense the day of the Lord has arrived. So as the day of the Lord comes in its terrible chaos, imagine a peaceful path that winds through it. That is 
repentance. And so to do that, I want to think about the day of the Lord in two ways. Uh, One, uh, you probably focused on last week um, already. We're going to sort of look at that again. And the second one uh, is, is here where Joel goes into more detail. And the first is God's action in the day of the Lord. That's the first way we're going to think about it, God's action. And the second thing is man's response to the day of the Lord. God's action and our response. So as we think about God's action in the day of the Lord, we're more or less reviewing uh, what was spoken about last week. It's essentially what Joel is doing in chapter 2 anyway. In verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, he's still speaking of this plague of locusts that is coming to create chaos and desolation. But in chapter 2, he begins to use more symbolic language. He speaks of them as a kind of army that is descending on the nation. So he says, sound the alarm, Uh, you know, alert the troops, be prepared for this plague that is coming. And they're not just under siege by a foreign enemy. This isn't just something that has come upon them because of uh, political conflict or uh, any kind of warfare. Verse 1 reconfirms what we learned in Joel chapter 1, that the day of the Lord is coming. It is the day of the Lord that is near. It is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. It is Yahweh's day as the head of that Old Testament church. This swarm of locusts or this army, as Joel refers to it, is a sign that God's vengeance has come upon his own people. It'll be so destructive that though they once appeared like the Garden of Eden, with their verdant beauty and lush green vegetation, they would be nothing but stubble and scorched earth. And the only way to prepare in those opening verses is simply to tremble in verse 1. It says, tremble for the day of the Lord has come. Now what's probably most difficult for the people of God to wrestle with in this scenario is that this is distinctly the Lord's day. Uh, We we tend in the church to think uh, more lightly about the day of the Lord. We we imagine this day to be a, a wonderful, beautiful day of celebration, but God has painted a different picture here. He has sent these locusts to create problems and destruction among his own people. He has determined that it's in the best interest, not only of his people, but for all of creation that his people suffer under his hand. And this can really become the pressure point for Christians. So I want to be very specific about what the day of the Lord is in Joel's thinking. And here's a a definition you can work with. The day of the Lord is a calculated event or series of events designed especially 
to bring repentance to God's people and is a direct result of their obvious disobedience. Okay? It's a calculated event or series of events designed especially to bring repentance to God's people and it's a direct result of their obvious disobedience before God. It is a call for both public and private repentance on behalf of the church. God is not calling his people to point out the sins of the surrounding culture or nations. God is calling the church to repent of our sins and our disobedience. You see, in the day of the Lord scenario that God gives us here, it's, it's not us, it's not the church getting caught up in God's judgment on the nations, it's the nations getting caught up in God's judgment on the church. And when we don't see it properly, we will not be able to repent properly. God is saying to the people here, don't worry about the other nations. <laughs> don't worry about them. Worry about you. Worry about your relationship with me. See, the perspective of the day of the Lord is not that it has come for others, but it, that, that it has come for us. And that is a heart-wrenching thought. But this is why we have to hold on to this idea. Why, well, this is why Christians have to have this idea as central to our doctrinal thinking. Because this reality of the day of the Lord and its actual fulfillment is most evident as it pertains to Jesus. You see, two components we've talked about today meet in Jesus. His, his personal desolation and the reaction of the creation. We read in verse 11 here in Joel chapter 2 that the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, the stars stop shining. This kind of apocalyptic language we see all throughout the prophets. We see it in the book of Revelation. We see it in the teachings of Jesus. But most poignantly, we see it in the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus is alone, betrayed, beaten, tortured. We might say the, the verdant garden that is the Son of God is left behind as stubble. What happens in that moment? The earth trembles, if you remember the Gospels. The sky thunders. The mountains crack. Darkness falls. The dead rise out of their graves. The Gospels speak to us of this awesome moment of the very Son of God receiving the wrath of the day of the Lord. Was this a battle with Satan? No. <laughs> we never hear that Jesus' crucifixion was a battle with Satan. It was God's sovereign choice to expend his wrath on his very Son. 
the representative of his household. See, Joel's prophecy and the day of the Lord, the people experienced, is a sign for future generations. It's a sign for us about what, is, what God is willing to do to save his people. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, he says in chapter 9, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. God's ultimate action in the ultimate day of the Lord is ultimately to save those whose faith is in him. And we have to hold on to that truth. All right, so that's God's action in the day of the Lord. But now we have to consider man's response to the day of the Lord. How are we to respond to this moment? So we've recognized that this day is the Lord's day. And we might say that we, we get this, we understand this. But how many times over the last century at least has the church beheld seemingly terrible day of the Lord moments around the world and offered the opinion that the terrible situation of XYZ must be happening to such and such a nation because of their religion or their morality or lack of morality or their political system or whatever else it is. See, when we sense the nearness of the day of the Lord, our first response is to place blame on other people. Uh, this is common if, if you uh, remember your childhood or if you're raising children right now. Uh, if there's a problem and mom or dad shows up in the room and says, what is gonna, what has happened here? You know, wait till you, wait till I figure out how I'm gonna punish you guys. What starts happening? Immediate repentance? Blame. He did it. She did it. That is how we are designed, unfortunately. It's not how we're designed. It's how we have developed because of our sin. Our first response when we sense the nearness of the day of the Lord is to blame. You might remember the gospel narrative where Jesus is approached by some of his followers in Luke chapter 13, and uh, they say, hey, Jesus, did you hear about these Galileans who were killed by our Roman oppressors? And the, the term they use is their blood was mingled with their sacrifices, right? So they were slaughtered um, while they were offering some type of sacrifice. And the question that Jesus hears them ask is, these must have been really bad sinners, right? And Jesus' response in Luke 13, chapter 2 is, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Okay? And he doesn't leave it there. <laughs> he gives his own example. He says, what about those 18 people on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. 
But unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. I mean, they're just pulling stories from the news. But I want you to think about the last time a Christian brother or sister pulled a story from the news about something terrible happening to somebody. And what was sort of the first temptation? Man, you know, what did they do? <laughs> right? It's, it's right here for us, the church, to behold. It's not because of what they did. It is not our place to say such a thing. Our place is to be reminded that we ought to live lives of repentance. See, Jesus senses in this moment that these folks have heard this awful report, um, and he says, stop judging. (laughs) Stop blaming these people in the midst of their suffering. And instead, what does he say we should do? He says, repent. So even though the church is quick to try and assign blame in these moments, we know that this perspective can't be godly. And we have to stop. The day of the Lord is a cataclysmic event, and one is, that is obvious to the world, but what ought to be most obvious is the humility and the repentance of the church for its own sins in such times. Now, been talking in general um, about suffering to some degree as a result of the day of the Lord. And there may be some here who are thinking about their own personal suffering and wondering how does this day of the Lord stuff help us deal with our own personal suffering. And so here's the thing. Just like we can't connect other people's behavior to what we determine could be day of the Lord type moments. We can't do that with ourselves either. What's good for the goose is good for the gander in this moment. And so instead, we should all be looking at our personal suffering and be encouraged that we ought to respond in light of the meaning of the day of the Lord, right? We don't assume that the suffering we're experiencing or the suffering that family members are experiencing is because of their own personal sin. Instead, we assume that God knows all and that in the moment of suffering, the best way through is simply to humble ourselves and repent. We'll never know if our suffering has to do with our behavior or not. It is held mysteriously in God's divine mind. But we do know that when suffering comes, we ought to humble ourselves. We ought to repent. So Joel says that when we see these events that we believe potentially represent the day of the Lord, we should do one thing in verse 12 return. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When Joel says return, he means repent. 
And to repent is not just to be sorry. It's to make a total turn away from the direction you are going, behaving, thinking, or planning. Joel is saying that the way the people are going is a wrong way. And unless they turn, this plague will leave them a total desolation. This can't just be a robotic, ah, right, we'll change course, you know. God is looking for a heartfelt decision, he says. He says, return with your whole heart. This means that you see the offense to God that you have caused and you realize both his position and your position. And you know that your only hope is to go his way. There's a question here, though, that's sort of begged, and that's, how do you know? How do you know that this is a a heart orientation? How do you know that this is a whole way kind of orientation? There's a little clue in verse 14 where the prophet says, who knows whether he will return, or, or I'm sorry, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? You see, the prophet's not even sure that God will relent. He says, true repentance happens regardless of the outcome. True repentance is a who-knows kind of situation. The heart is so convinced of its wrong that it desires to turn whether or not the situation will change. The individual would rather be faithful to God and die than be unfaithful and do the same. And this is faith. But I want to leave you with one final thing connected to this thought here. You notice that the final command in verse 17 is levied on one particular class of people. The leaders. It says, Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. And though we certainly can still say that our spiritual leaders ought to lead us in repentance and prayer, there is actually again, a better reality to lean on and a better reality that this points to. You see, as the priest positions himself in verse 17 between the vestibule and the altar, he is positioning himself between the people of God and their God. He is behaving as what the Bible calls a mediator. And the Commentaries tell us that this vestibule may have had room for all the priests, or at least a large number of them in the nation. And so if you can imagine all the Levites gathered there in the temple, wailing and weeping and mourning on behalf of the sins of God's people. Well, we read in the book of Hebrews in verse 9 that Jesus in chapter 9, sorry, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called 
may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first. You see, no matter how many priests, uh, no matter how many Marks or Chrises might gather between the church and their God, we could never secure through a promise yours or our own salvation and peace. But only Christ could do such a thing. And just as the first priests plead on behalf of the sinful nation, Jesus pled on behalf of those who brought desolation on his own head. You remember in Luke chapter 23, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is the great high priest, the mediator of a better covenant, the way forward for us, the church, to find our repentance and our humility in the day of the Lord so that we may face it with no fear and so that we may be a blessing to the nations as they experience suffering and hardship and fear themselves. The day of the Lord calls us to place our faith in Christ and to more and more adopt attitudes of repentance and humility as we walk out this faith in a culture that more and more despises us. Which way do you want to go? <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your Son, Christ, the only hope we have in life and death. Lord, we thank you that he gives us the way through these difficult questions. Lord, we thank you that he has made it possible for us to live lives that point to you even in the midst of suffering and hardship. God, we ask now that you would encourage your church, that you would give us great hope, that you would always point us back to Christ, and that you would renew and refresh your people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.